Welcome, friends. You have found the Out of the Ordinary bonus top 10 Christmas books episode. I am Lisa Jo Baker. (laughs) And I'm Christy Purifoy. And we're so delighted to bring to you this smorgasbord of delicious Christmas treats, including everything from fiction to nonfiction, from poems to kids' books. We hope that you will find a little bit of something for everybody here that you can print out and take with you to your local library, and that will just be a nice, delicious treat to keep you company through this Christmas season. I think it could be fun, Lisa Jo, because we're each sharing our own personal top tens. I'm wondering if I'm going to have to head to the library after this and check out all of your top tens, or do I know them? Will I have read them? Ah, the suspense is killing me. I know, and that's <laughs> fun for our readers to know, our readers, our listeners to know. I've got books on the brain, um, mm-hmm. but it's fun for you guys to know that we don't actually know what the other person is going to say. So the parameters we gave each other were, let's find 10 books that we think really bring something special to the Christmas season. Now, that doesn't mean they have to be Christmas-themed books. They might be, they might not be, but we will be sharing with you and one another for the first time (laughs) why we picked these books and why we think they fit with the Christmas season. So really, that means you get 20 books total, assuming, Christy, that neither of us have the same books on our list. Mm Mm-hmm, let's find out. Should I start with my Ooh, number 10? Drum roll, please. Drum roll. Get your hot chocolate <laughs> and your marshmallows, people. Here we go. Deep dive into our top 10 Christmas books. Take it away, Christine, right. with number 10. Get cozy. Here we go. Number 10. Um, this one is a treat to share with you, Lisa Joe, and with everyone. This is Madeline Langle's The Irrational Season. Ooh. This is book three of her Crosswicks journal uh, series of memoir books. It's fun to share with you, Lisa Joe, because you have given me the best compliment a few times now when you have called me, me, Christy Purifoy, your personal Madeline Langle. <laughs> yes, ma'am. That's right. And you live at your own Crosswicks. It's just called Maplehurst. That's right. I love that compliment so much. And I have to say that I do think our Maplehurst dream was fueled in part by my reading of the Crosswicks journals. So I love all of her Crosswicks journals, their um, memoir, their um, spiritual reflection. They were a big inspiration for me when I was writing my book, Roots in Sky. Um, They cover all seasons of her life and different topics. But this one, The Irrational Season... It's not a Christmas book per se, but she she goes through the year, she goes through the liturgical seasons of the church, and that really shapes her thinking and her questioning and her storytelling in this book. So this book begins with Advent and then kind of does a full circle and ends again um, right before Christmas as the family is preparing for Christmas at Crosswicks. So the thing to know about, so if you know Langle, you know her probably from her fiction, you know A Wrinkle in Time. This is not that, but this is the mind behind the wrinkle in time. And I think that's what I really appreciate about it. I appreciate Langle because she asks hard, hard questions. She's totally honest about her spiritual doubts. She mixes traditional memoir writing with poetry. So this one, unlike some of the other Crosswicks journals, um, has her poems interspersed throughout. And I think that's because in this book, she is meditating so 
deeply on the mysteries of the Christian year and of the story of Jesus coming to us, that it inspires these, really these songs of praise that are um, interspersed throughout. So there's really everything in here. But yeah, it's not, this is not cozy comfort Christmas, and that's why it's called the irrational season. This is Langle with all of her brilliant spiritual seeking and her brilliant mind and her creativity really doing a deep dive into some of the harder questions raised in this season. So I'm just going to read a little portion for our listeners just to give you the flavor of the kinds of questions she asks, the kind of thinking she does in this book, and really what you're getting in this book. It's not a traditional story. There isn't much of a plot per se, but you are seeing her mind and really her heart, her soul in action, in contemplation, really. Okay, so this comes uh, toward the end of the book, The Irrational Season. This past week, while we were in the city, Bobby came to the north field of Crosswicks and spread its browning clover and grasses with manure. During the weekend, Hugh goes to the rotting mulch of the compost heap and spreads it over the garden before plowing it in. And this is good. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, And be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? It is the Lord, strong and mighty, even the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? Even the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Thus cries the psalmist, Thus I cry after him. Who is this king of glory? A child born of a woman, a man betrayed by his friends as well as by his enemies, a failure who died ignominiously and who should by all logic have been immediately forgotten, a king of no glory on earth, a king who lost his battle with the powers of this world or so it would seem from the surface of the story. He performed a few miracles, but miracles were nothing new. Others performed miracles, and he couldn't save himself at the end. If I am to seek for answers to my questions, or even for the questions to ask in the first place, I must hold to this failure. But it isn't easy. So far have we strayed from the original vision. We don't understand the method in his madness. His coming to us as a human child in total weakness was the greatest act of warfare against the powers of hate and chaos that I know. And if I, too, am to fight in this battle, it is from his weakness that I must draw my strength. That is The Irrational Season by Madeline Langle, my number 10. I love it. And I think The Irrational Season is the perfect beginning to a conversation about books about Christmas because so much of the season can just feel like it brings out the crazy in us, whether it's our Mm -hmm. family relatives or our money situation or our stress around expectations. We all get a little irrational around the season. So that is such a great beginning. Of course, the one and only Madeline Langle. What a good way to begin (laughs) it. All right. So I'm going to take a completely different path. My number 10 is a fiction read by a British author that I love. It is a mystery, my favorite mystery writer. Christy has heard me talk about him many times. His name is Dick Francis. And this is one of his books. It's called Break In. 
The reason I love this book is it's one of only two in his many, you know, he's written like probably a hundred or so of mystery books. But in those books, he only has two characters that repeat more than once. So there's like a series. And this particular book is the first in the series of a character whose name is Kit. And what I love about Kit is it's short for Christmas. The name of the main <gasps> character is Christmas. Ah. Because, and he has a twin sister and they were born on Christmas morning. And his he was named Christmas and she was named Holly. <laughs> and um, that's pretty much the only Christmassy that you get from this book. But I love it because <laughs> he is this wonderful character who loves his sister. They have kind of this twin shared mental telepathy where they can, you know, not literally, but they feel so deeply connected to one another. And Dick Francis sets all of his books somehow adjacent to the horse riding or horse racing industry. So in this situation, Kit is one of the jockeys. And what I love about Dick Francis's writing so much, nobody writes a mystery book like him. And as Christy said in one of her lists of her favorite ordinary things is nothing like a new mystery novel from the library around this season for curling up with your hot chocolate. Dick Francis is amazing. All of his books are standalones. Here's one character you'll meet more than once. And they're always in the library. So if you're looking for a good read over the Christmas season, this is it. They're not too scary. They're not R. The mysteries are wonderful. The characters are people of integrity. And he writes the greatest opening sentences ever in fiction, as far as I'm concerned. So here's chapter one of Break In. He says, blood ties can mean trouble, chains, and fatal obligation. The tie of twins inescapably strongest. My twin, my bond. My sister Holly sprung into the world 10 minutes after myself on Christmas morning with bells ringing over frosty fields and hope still wrapped in beckoning parcels. My sister Holly had through 30 years been cotmate, puppy companion, boxing target, and best friend, consecutively on the whole. My sister Holly came to Cheltenham races and intercepted me between weighing room and parade ring when I went out to ride in a three-mile steeplechase. I love this book so much because Christmas is a season about blood ties and trouble and obligations. <laughs> and uh, here's just a really fun, fast, action-packed fiction story about these two siblings, Kit and Holly, and uh, the horse racing industry. And you don't need to know anything about horses to appreciate this story, which is fast and fun. And I promise you, you'll read one and immediately going back to the library for the next one. So that's my number 10, Dick Francis Break-In. Lisa Joe, I've never read a Dick Francis, so I'm going to fix that this Christmas for sure. Maybe I'll start with that one. Okay, so onward, number nine. Again, completely switching gears, which I think is going to be so fun about this whole conversation, is that we're going to jump all over the place in terms of content and genre. So let's see, we did memoir, nonfiction, you touched on fiction. I'm going to take us for my number nine to poetry. Okay, I have to admit something as well. Like, this is not a perfect top 10 in the sense of, like, do I really love nine more than 10 versus three? I'm not so sure. But I love that these two books, I decided to put them next to each other in my list because these two women were friends. I like to think they're kind of like some other version of you and me, Lisa Joe. So this book is Accompanied by Angels, Poems of the Incarnation by Lucy Shaw. And I love so many books by um, Lucy Shaw. I love that she and Madeline had this really special friendship. 
And um, Lucy also has written memoir nonfiction, but this is a book of poems, just as it sounds, poems of the incarnation. So um, the really beautiful thing here is that she she takes what we know and believe from the Bible, like it is absolute orthodox truth. But because she's a poet, she helps us see so much of what we already know or we've heard a million times. Like we know about the stable, we know about Mary, we know the angel, we know, we know. And we can become jaded, I think, to all the details of these really wild, irrational stories that we've heard so many times. But um, when she tells them again in these poems, it's like um, Emily Dickinson saying, tell it slant or something. Now we kind of come at it slant-wise and almost see some of the familiar stories out of the corners of our eyes, and they're changed. So she writes um, a number of poems from Mary's point of view that are really powerful. She writes, she looks at sort of Christmas art, like Mary and the Angel and the Annunciation, and she writes a poem about that. There are poems in here about Jesus as flesh and blood. And I think I also recommend this because I think this time of year, we all need at least one book of poems by our side. We maybe don't have a lot of time for reading. We maybe don't have a lot of time for especially devotional reading. Um, But in this book, accompanied by angels, you can sit down in the morning with your cup for five minutes or less and um, receive some something really powerful, some little thought or line that can stick with you th- through the day. So my number nine, Accompanied by Angels, Lucy Shaw, and these are poems. Oh, I was pausing because I thought you were going to read one to us. <laughs> uh, oh, that's the other thing we should say. We are going to read aloud from at least half of our choices, but we won't read from every one. Um, so I am going to read a poem later on, but not one of Lucy's. So I hope we say enough to whet your appetite, but some of them you're just going to have to go find them for yourself. <laughs> Agree. Else we'll be talking for three or four hours, which if it was just right. the two of us is fine, but maybe our listeners don't want to stick with us for that long. <laughs> I love that you talk about Lucy Shaw. Man, I love her. My dad loves Lucy Shaw so much. It's amazing that all the way to South Africa, her poetry mm-hmm. has really meant a lot to him over the years as well. All right. So we've had some nonfiction, some fiction, some poetry, and now I'm going to just throw in a little... I'm not going to call it self-help. To me, it's more like soul care. When I think about this season, and I really do mean that this book is a top 10 for me when it comes to any gathering in of family and friends, because as we all know, we can become frozen in a version of ourselves that lives at age 12 or 13, and we repeat those patterns over and over again when we go back into family settings. And so for me, as a 45-year-old, I am doing a lot of work. I have been the last few years to really own who I am now and to let that version of me show up at family gatherings. And this book has been invaluable and I think should be required reading (laughs) before anyone spends extended uh, periods of time with their family. So it's called Boundaries. (laughs) Mm. The Christmas read everybody needs. Um, (laughs) Boundaries. And then the subtitle is When to Say Yes, How to Say No to Take Control of Your Life. And it's by Henry Cloud and John Townsend. And I'm sure many people have heard of both of them and maybe thought, I should get that book. I should take a look and haven't. Now is your time, dear friends. The library have many copies of it. And I'll read here. I won't read from the book. I wanted to read more of the excerpt explaining what the book's about, because you might see yourself in it and think, gosh, before I walk in my in-law's house or my grandma's home or back into my church I grew up in as a kid, 
it'd be really helpful to just spend a little time making sure that that experience is as enjoyable for me and others as possible. So it says here, does your life feel like it's out of control? Perhaps you feel like you have to say yes to everyone's requests. And I don't know about you, Christy, but I feel this way a lot in the holiday Mm -hmm. season. Maybe you find yourself readily taking responsibility for other people's feelings and problems, or perhaps you focus so much on being loving and unselfish that you've forgotten your own limits and limitations. And I think the Christmas season particularly lends itself to that, as does, I think, being Christians who feel like we're supposed to always be so loving and so wonderful and so kind and and never have any other negative emotions. And that can just be a powder keg in the Christmas season. It says here, the doctors Henry Cloud and John Townsend will help you learn when to say yes and how to say no in order to take control of your life and set healthy biblical boundaries with your spouse, your children, your friends, your parents, your coworkers, and even yourself. And so they look into things like, how do I set limits? What does that look like? What are legitimate boundaries? You know, how do I manage my digital life so it doesn't control me? What if someone is upset or hurt by my boundaries? How do I answer someone who wants more of my time or my love or my energy or my money? How do I have boundaries in my marriage? Aren't boundaries selfish? Like such great questions as you walk into environments this season that are wonderful and meaningful and beautiful and sometimes can be fraught with landmines. So I just encourage anybody to take a look at this. It's kind of like going in for a check-in, like a car. Like you're driving home for Christmas. You're going to get that car checked out before you do the long road trip. Might as well do the same for your soul. So the book, again, is Boundaries, and it's by Henry Cloud and John Townsend, and mine is marked up and dog-eared, and I cannot recommend it enough. Lisa Joe, I would have never imagined that book showing up on a I'm Christmas so top 10, but it's it's perfect. It's perfect. And I'm sitting here. I've heard about that book for years. It's come highly recommended to me by many people, and I have never... I may have even checked it out of the library at one point. And, you know, sometimes it happens. You check out too many things yeah. at once and you don't get to it and you end up having to turn it in. So I have never actually read it, but actually you've spoken to a struggle I've had just this week. There was a no I said, and I am still second guessing it. I am, mm. It's still running over in my head. Like, was that, should I? I, I think I need to read, maybe before Dick Francis, actually, I need to read Boundaries. <laughs> and the great thing about the book is that you don't have to actually read it cover to cover because it's quite a mm. substantial book. You really can look at the table of contents. And I think, you know, particularly, so you're talking about how it's hard to say no sometimes. Jump into mm-hmm. that section. It's pretty clearly defined what sections mm. address what areas we struggle with when it comes to boundaries. And I think for anybody, especially adults in the holiday season, getting a little help to just navigate some of that it's really good for all of us. Mm-hmm. Okay, definitely heading to the library next. All right, but first, oh, I don't want to lose track. I'm on my number seven, eight, eight, eight. I know I was counting. <laughs> something I was like, we're number three. Wait, nope, that's not right. <laughs> number eight because we're counting my down. Number eight. So here's the thing. Every year, for years and years now, I so I love reading aloud with my kids. It's there is so much that I do not do with my children or do well, um, but I love to read aloud to them. That does not mean they always receive it well. Frankly, most of the time they don't. It's been, I've just pushed for it. It's It means something to me, so I have pushed for it. And I especially love reading aloud to them. Um, even my teenagers, I have two teenagers. I'll read a little bit after dinner each night if everyone's not rushing off. And especially during Advent. So that that season of anticipation and build up and expectation before Christmas. I love to have 
um, one special book that we're going through. And so sometimes it's an Advent devotional, but I'm always looking for something a little different. So a couple of years ago, I found this very odd little book called The Christmas Mystery, um, and it is translated from uh, Norwegian. So I assume you say his name, Jastin Garder, G-A-A-R-D-E-R. Of course, we'll have all of this listed out with links in the show notes. Maybe Jostein, Jostein, I should have checked. I did not check before getting on here and telling you. But anyway, it's called The Christmas Mystery, and it it's odd, <laughs> I've never been quite sure if it's odd because it's been translated into, well, it's probably odd for many reasons, one of which may be that it's (laughs) translated into English, so sometimes the language is a little quirky. (laughs) I think also it's just the product of an odd, in the best way, mind, Um, and it's just unexpected. It just comes at the Christmas story from a funny, odd angle. So essentially what it is in novel form is... And a book reading experience as if you are opening up one of those little windows in a paper advent calendar. So you know what I'm talking about, Lisa Joe, where right. they have from day one through Christmas, a little window, and each day you get some little picture in it, but it's a mystery, you know, behind the, the cardboard window. So the book is like that with each, the whole novel is divided up into those days. It begins on the 1st of December and goes through, and um, you read that portion and it's as if you've opened that window of the calendar. But this, Lisa Joe, is a magical <laughs> Advent calendar. And um, essentially what happens is that a boy is drawn into the story of his Advent calendar. He, like so many great books for younger people, um, he um, is paired up with this mysterious other child, this young girl, and he follows her on this epic journey. And what ends up happening is that through the course of the stories and the opening of each window, they start moving back in time toward the moment of Jesus' birth. Oh, no way. It's very interesting. And I I have to, I cannot overestimate how odd it is. (laughs) The characters who show up, the weirdness of some of the encounters, it's weird. But the cumulative effect of that and of this moving backwards in time through the magic of this Advent calendar This is what it does. The Jesus who was born in history 2,000 years ago can feel so far away as if, I mean, ancient history. I know my children feel that. Like, why, why, why are we still talking about this? It happened so long ago. I feel so remote from that. But what happens in this book is he actually takes you back in time. Um, And essentially, as you're moving back in time, their geography, they're traveling from Norway to the Holy Land. But you're moving back in time, and and church history is is un... What would it be? It's not unfolding. It's 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 unraveling backwards as you go deeper into the story. So the effect of that is that you're not only following a geographic line closer to the place where Jesus was born, you are following that line back in time and realizing just how connected we are to that day, that everything that's come since has just happened day by day by day. And the the sheer act in stories of moving backwards through those days, of seeing the church grow and flourish and spread across Europe, I felt reading it more connected to that past and that history than I've ever felt because I realized it's it's almost like you're just traveling back in time. That's, That's really the only way to put it. So, without describing it anymore, because really words fail me 
<laughs> for this funny, funny little book. Um, I'm just going to read a short portion from the beginning just to get you a sense of the sweetness of it and the little characters. And um, this just comes early on, really before we start opening those windows. And this is when our young character um, discovers this advent calendar. His name is Joachim. Forgive me, Lisa Joe, because I stuck my little bookmark in, but now I'm thinking, where exactly should I start reading for you all? Okay, so here we are. Dusk. Oh, and keep in mind too, this is Norway, so that's part of the charm too. We're in a we're in a little uh, European village celebrating Christmas. Dusk was falling. The lights were on in the Christmas streets. Thick snowflakes were dancing between the lamps. The streets were crowded with people. Among all these busy persons were Papa and Joachim, who had gone into town to buy an advent calendar. It was their last chance, because tomorrow would be the 1st of December. They were sold out at the newsstand and in the big bookstore at the market. Joachim tugged his father's hand hard and pointed at a tiny shop window where a brightly colored advent calendar was leaning against a pile of books. There, he said. Papa turned back. Saved. They went into a little bookshop that Joachim thought looked old and worn out. Books stood tightly packed on shelves along all the walls from floor to ceiling, all of them different. A large pile of advent calendars lay on the counter. There were two kinds, one with a picture of Santa Claus with a sled and reindeer, and the other with a picture of a barn with a tiny little elf eating porridge out of a big bowl. Papa held up the two calendars. There are plastic figures in this one and chocolate ones in that, he said, but the dentist won't be too happy about that. Joachim examined the two calendars. He didn't know which one he wanted. It was different when I was a boy, continued Papa. How do you mean? Then there was only a tiny picture behind each door, one for each day. But it was exciting every morning trying to guess what the picture would be. Then we opened it. Well, well, we just opened it, you see. It was, it was like opening the door to a different world. Well, I'll stop there. Oh, I'll I, give lo- at least- I want you to keep going. <laughs> I'll love- give at least this away that Joaquin chooses a different calendar tucked behind, I think, some dusty old books uh, in this little shop. And it doesn't have plastic figures and it doesn't have chocolate, but what it has is a whole world behind each door. And oh, uh, you get to travel through and deeper into all those worlds as you read um, through these 25 days. So that is The Christmas Mystery, um, Yostin Garter, and that is my number eight. I, I mean, that now has just moved to the top of the books I'm going to get from my kids this Christmas. And I, we've been thinking about what are we going to read as we head into the Christmas season as a family. And now I'm hooked. I also really enjoyed how your voice switched over to that children's sing-songy mm. narrator voice. I love it. It's that that li- the librarian, right, who reads to right. the kids at story time. Ooh, that was a good one. I like it a lot. All right. So this is now, is this now my number eight as well? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm losing count on what they are. We're yes. going to lose track. This is my the number end. eight. <laughs> okay. So my number eight, I have poetry. I thought you'd be so proud of me. 
Wow, I am. Well so done. So I'm not like Christy in the sense that I don't read a ton of poetry. I tend to follow writers whose voices I love. And if they write poetry, then I'm like, ooh, I wonder what a poem by him would be like. So this is by one of our favorite authors, Christy, by John Blaise. And he mm. has this collection of poems called the Jubilee Poems. Mm. And while they're not, the collection itself is not supposed to be just about Christmas, what I love about it is it speaks to the things we like to celebrate here at the Out of the Ordinary podcast. So if you know anything about your, your Hebrew history, Jubilee was this celebration in Hebrew culture every 50 years or so, I think actually not or so, exactly every 50 years, where there would be essentially a kind of uh, remission from consequences of sin, um, but really as evidenced by a year of emancipation or restoration. So, like, slaves were given back, land that you had to give up as credit was returned to its original owners. There was this sense of everything getting righted, everything getting put back the way it should be. And what I love about this collection is he really writes about, as the description says, um, in the Jubilee, the poet's vision is rooted firmly in ordinary life, which is what I love so much. So, Mm -hmm. he celebrates the things we love about ordinary life, whether it's the song of frogs or his dad's instant coffee, the sober burial of the prodigal out back beneath the oak trees. There's something about this kind of poetry that celebrates the ordinary everydayness that Christy, you and I love so much. And in one of his poems, he uses Christmas as this powerful metaphor. And so I'll just read these few lines. He says here, Christ lived as a man might live only near the end of his life in a way that militates against putting off what one has to do. In his awful incongruity, he was love perishing, pure gentleness in memory and melody, Christmas in the wilderness. That's what made men drop their lives and follow. And I just love this picture of Christ being someone who lived his whole life the way the rest of us might try to live the end of our lives as if Mm -hmm. every day matters, and that Christ brought to all of us a Christmas here in the wilderness of our ordinary. And so this celebration, this collection of poems to me feels like unwrapping presents. It's takes ordinary things and it wraps them up in a new way so that you can see the gift that's hidden in each of them. So that's the Jubilee Poems by John Blaise. Oh, I love it. I love his writing. And so, yeah, I'm so, so glad you included him and those poems in particular. Okay, so on to my number seven. Um, These books I discovered just a couple years ago, I think recommended by a friend. And I (laughs) <laughs> they're one of those books, and really it's a it's a series, so I'll tell you about one, but um, the whole series of them, when I found them, I thought, where have you been? <laughs> you are my books. <laughs> Why didn't I know about you sooner? So these are very similar, actually, to Langell's Crosswick's journals, but these books are by Phyllis Tickle, and some of you may know she's passed away now, but she was a religion writer for many years very influential woman, um, speaker. She edited, put together an edited book, prayer books that I use and love um, following, uh, based on uh, traditional Christian um, praying the hours. Um, So those are her prayer books, but I had no idea for years 
despite loving her prayer books, that she had written this series of very brief seasonal memoirs called Stories from the Farm in Lucy. She lived on a farm with her husband and her many kids. And so she writes these seasonal spiritual reflections rooted in their experiences with their busy household on the farm. So she has some for Easter and different in ordinary time. But the one I love to pull out this time of year is called What the Land Already Knows, Winter's Sacred Days. And this is Phyllis Tickle. So I'm not going to read from it. I'll read from some others on my list here. But I will just say that, I mean, it's, it's not going to be a surprise to you, Lisa Joe, or anyone listening that I would love a book like this. Um, these are spiritual reflections rooted in ordinary life, rooted in um, ordinary rural life, farming life, barns and animals and gardens and growing things, growing children. <laughs> they had many children together, and um, the children populate these stories. This is a mom living a very ordinary life but writing beautiful little books about the rhythms of their family life, the rhythms of their Christmas celebrations. I think as well to know about Phyllis Tickle is that she worshipped in, as an adult, she she joined liturgical Christian churches, and so she was very attuned to the church cal- the traditional church calendar and seasons of Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. And so, uh, you know, she might start with the essay might be inspired by the Joseph candle um, that they are lighting as a family, but then she just spins off from that some story of saving a cow who's floundering in a frozen pond. But with Phyllis Tickle, that very um, earthy (laughs) thing inspires just layers and layers of deep theological meaning, but in a way that is so accessible, so simple, so easy to read this time of year, these brief little chapters. So I look forward every year. I'm always sad if I forget and I forget to pull one out at the right season because um, this is one that I love to revisit every year. So this is um, my number seven. And again, Phyllis Tickle, What the Land Already Knows, which even just that title, it gives me goosebumps. I love it. What the Land Already Knows. Oh, that's so good. I love it. So that's your number seven. My number seven will make you laugh, but I really wanted to include a cookbook. (laughs) Good. Oh, I have one too. So don't worry. (laughs) Well, I knew you were going to include one. So I felt like I wanted to include one too. However, I am not a good cook. I sometimes buy cookbooks and then I do nothing with them. They sit on my shelf or I read them. If they're by friends that I like, I find them curious. I like the pictures of food. (laughs) I do too. (laughs) But So this cookbook, you guys, is from my childhood. My mom had this cookbook. You're going to laugh so much when you hear what it is. This is Betty Crocker's Cookbook for Boys and Girls. Oh, I know that book. 1957 is when it was originally published. Wow. So it is. So here we go. Buyer beware. It is the kind of cookbook that calls for things like lard, you know, like incredibly (laughs) unhealthy stuff. Some of the dishes are kind of weird, but I include it because for me, it is so sentimental and my mom had it. It's the first cookbook I ever experienced as a child. The recipes are designed for kids. They're very, very simple. The instructions Mm -hmm. are really simple. The photographs will make you laugh because they look so old school, like something right out of the 70s. But there is a recipe in this cookbook for chocolate fudge that I swear by. We make it every year. It is no fail amazingness. And uh, the cookbook's illustrations just bring me joy. 
because they're so funny. They look like something out of, um, you know, a first grade reader's book that I experienced in kindergarten when I was in the U.S. So yeah, Betty Crocker's Cookbook for Boys and Girls. Amazon, in fact, has the updated version, but I've seen it in libraries as well. And it's the chocolate fudge recipe that makes me endorse this book to you. I love it. And I totally want to make that fudge. Oh, that's such a great choice. So, so good. Okay. So my number six, I think also, so I'm moving now to a children's picture book. So we're on a little kid kick here. But like your cookbook, um, I have chosen a picture book that I would give to any adult. I will be reading this even when my children are grown up and gone. Yeah, picture books, I tell anyone who will listen, they are not just for kids. They are, many of them, works of art. And I actually have quite a collection of Advent and Christmas picture books. And my favorite thing this time of year is to pull them out. And I will read them myself. I mean, again, this is not just for those of us who have kids in the home. Um, So even if that's not you, I recommend The Year of the Perfect Christmas Tree. And it is by Gloria Houston. And the pictures, this is important, are by Barbara Cooney. And I'm sure if you take a look at this book online or in the library, you will recognize um, the style of illustration. But I love this book because it's beautiful. I love it because the story is very meaningful and deeply emotional, but it isn't sentimental. I think that is a line I'm always trying to find a, a kind of tension this time of year is that this time of year, there is a lot that is very sentimental. And while there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, um, I find that it, it can become like eating too much sugar or only eating sugar. <laughs> and I, I love sweetness, but to have my sweetness, um, I don't know, laced with something that's a little more lasting and feels a little more um, satisfying. So I'm always looking for stories that hit that line in particular. So it is, this is a story, um, and it's one of those, I don't even know, I feel like if I did a little research, I could find out maybe, it's certainly based on true history. I don't know that it's a true story necessarily, but it's about a very poor American community. Um, It's just before Christmas, but the young girl's father has gone off to war. And I won't give too many details away, except to say that in this community that seems to have so little they have beautiful sustaining traditions around bringing in a Christmas tree to their church, to their worship gathering, and each family takes turns with that responsibility. And the story here is, will this family with the father gone away to war be able to fulfill um, their promise? Will they be able to fulfill their role in the community and sort of bring Christmas to the community? And um, and the little girl you know, who's at the center of it and her desire to do that— But also at the same time, it's not just a story about her kind of rising to the occasion and becoming strong. I mean, it is that. But it's also a beautiful story about how her needs are met and how she is tenderly cared for in this season. So I love (laughs) the year of the perfect Christmas tree. I read this one every year, and I would give this one as a gift to to adults in my life. It's um, just a gorgeous glimpse back in time and... Yeah, just emotionally deep without being at all too sugary, too sweet. And illustrations, oh my goodness, I'm looking at it now, and there's a picture of a beautiful full moon and the little girl with her lantern in the snow. Um, This is a precious book. So that's The Year of the Perfect Christmas Tree, Gloria Houston. 
Oh, I love it. All right. We're nearly halfway. So this is my number six is also a kid's book, but I don't think of it as a kid's book either. I am often thinking, especially since I had boys first, like what kind of books would get their interest? And I actually remember as not just a child, but as a teenager, spending hours in these books. And it's a fun collection that's throughout the year, but tends sometimes to have just these beautiful focus on winter and outdoors and sledding and tobogganing and hot chocolate and chaos. And it's the magical world, a Kelvin and Hobbes collection. Ah. I love Kelvin and Hobbes so much. And as a child, I just remember spending hours and hours and hours reading them. And so for a a few years ago, those were one of the gifts we gave each of our boys, a big anthology of Kelvin and Hobbes. And as you know, Kelvin is the little boy. Hobbes is his stuffed tiger that comes alive, and they have all these adventures together. And I've always loved their winter adventures the most. They have fascinating conversations, really, about faith and trust when they are sledding together, and terror and fear, and how to face those fears with a friend. And they're just a really great way if you're trying to hook your kids into some easy reading, because they're cartoons, right? Um, But they have a lot more dialogue than a lot of cartoons do. But then they have whole panels that are just illustrations that are absolutely beautiful. And Every library I've been to carries a ton of those anthologies, but this one is just called It's a Magical World, and I love it. It has the big sledding picture on the cover, and it has a lot of their adventures together. This boy and his tiger that, as an adult, never gets old for me. I love entering into their world again. That's a brilliant choice. and I don't think I realized your family had that shared love for Calvin and Hobbes because um, Jonathan has loved them as long as I've known him. He collected all the books. I think even in our early dating days, I gave him some of the books at Christmas. And now all of those books are tattered and falling apart because my boys love them so much. So that's that's great. And I, for my next choice, I'm going to toss in another one for the kids. This one is a, a little picture book called Christmas in Noisy Village by Astrid Lindgren. And she's a, she was a Swedish writer for children. And this is a very simple little story about um, uh, three neighboring families with young children who live on this farm and how they celebrate a Swedish Christmas together. Very simple from the child's point of view, just talking you through their traditions. I cannot tell you how much I love this book, and I love reading it with my kids. This maybe isn't one I would give to an adult. (laughs) They might <laughs> look oddly at you because it very much is for kids and it's very simple. And here they are making their gingerbread and here they are gathering their wood. But I tell you, this is a book that my kids pick up again and again. And I think it must just be because I don't know, it just drops you right into that world and you are experiencing this Christmas with them. And so it really is like a little mini Christmas every time you open it. You're just right there and it's both familiar and because we, you know, we celebrate Christmas in familiar ways no matter where we live, but it's also different enough that you're intrigued by the fact that they have these fish dishes at Christmas Eve or, you know, the little things that are, Santa Claus is a little different and has a different name. It comes in a different way, um, but it's not so different to be off-putting. So I love, love, love Christmas in Noisy Village. And also, if you need some more reading for your kids, there are other Noisy Village books that are wonderful. So Astrid Lindgren. Christmas in Noisy Village. Oh, look at us. We're halfway. We're at number five as we head toward our top 10 
Christmas reads. Okay, so you're going to laugh because I love that your first one you shared was from the Crosswicks Journal because I have a Crosswicks Journal too. Yay! Except I'm reading from book number one. So this is Madeline Langle again, and this is her first book in this trilogy. It's called A Circle of Quiet. And it has meant so much to me because this is the book where she just shares the chaos of her life. And often we think of authors that we esteem as being people who get to write in this beautiful shed out in the remote woods while the snow falls outside and they're alone and it's beautiful. And instead, she shares how most of her writing was constantly being interrupted by being a mom with tiny kids and having to manage and always feeling like she wanted to write. And she experienced the tension with running a household and having kids and constantly beat herself over the head that she didn't know how to make strawberry jam. Like, she <laughs> she is my spirit animal <laughs> as a writer and as a mother and as a woman. And the reason I love this book is in this one, she talks a lot about her failure and how we might think of A Wrinkle in Time as this incredible success story. But for her, it was the book that got rejected so many times. And so in this passage, I'm going to read to you. She says here, A Wrinkle in Time was on its long search for a publisher. Finally, one who had kept the manuscript for three months turned it down on the Monday before Christmas. And I just think for all of us who've lived disappointments this year leading into Christmas and think people like Madeline Langle, they just had it all together. And we have the version of whoever that person is, right? So-and-so has it all together. If only I could do life like that person over there on Instagram or this person that I follow, if only I was them, it would be better. But man, she says, it had been turned down on the Monday before Christmas. I remember sitting on the foot of our bed, tying up Christmas presents, and feeling cold and numb, anesthetized. I was congratulating myself on being controlled and grown up, and found out only later that I'd made a mess of the Christmas presents. I'd sent some heady perfume to a confirmed bachelor, and a sober necktie to a 16-year-old girl. Oh, no. <laughs> so I called Theron, my agent. Send the manuscript back to me. Nobody's ever going to take it. Nobody's... Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped two pages. I'm trying to give a dramatic reading. Nobody's ever <laughs> going to take it. It's too peculiar, and it just isn't fair to the family. I just love how dramatic she is. <laughs> I can't relate at all. He didn't want to send it back, but I was cold and stubborn, and finally he gave in. My mother was with us for the holidays, and shortly after Christmas, I had a small party for her with some of her old friends. One of them, Hester Stover, more than ever dear to me now, said, Madeline, you must meet my friend, John Farrar. I made some kind of disgruntled noise because I never wanted to see another publisher. I was back to thinking I ought to learn to bake cherry pie. But Hester, going to a good deal of trouble, insisted on setting up an appointment, and I took the subway down to John Farrar's office. I just happened to have that rather bulky manuscript under my arm. He couldn't have been kinder or warmer. He knew some of my other work and was generous enough to say that he liked it, and he asked me what I was up to now. I explained that I had a book that I kind of liked, but nobody else did, or if they did, they were afraid of it. I left it with him. Within two weeks, I was having lunch with him and Hal and signing a contract. But don't be disappointed if it doesn't do well, they told me. We're publishing it because we love it. 
Hmm. Christy, doesn't that just hmm. give you the warm fuzzies, <laughs> the hope <laughs> that there are going to be people out there who love the work we do, not because they think it's going to be successful or make any of us famous, but because they love it. And really, that's enough. Like, even though A Wrinkle in Time went on to be so huge, how wonderful, though, that after feeling rejected right before Christmas, the gift she got were people who were willing to take a risk on her because they loved the work she did. And oh my goodness, I go back to that book all the time. And somehow in the Christmas season, it feels particularly poignant. Mm, That's a favorite of mine too, Lisa Jo. I love that one. So she was writing a novel and I am going to recommend a novel. So this would be my, what, my number four. So I, Lisa Jo, I don't know if I've ever shared this before, but I don't reread novels. I know that seems just ridiculous to me. Do not <laughs> understand that at all. You claim to be a book lover. What I know, is wrong with you? You're the opposite on this. I will reread other things, but I just always feel like there's so many books. I'm on to the next one. But this novel is the one major exception because I, for a number of years now, have purposefully reread it every December. This novel is by Rosamond Pilcher, and it's called Winter Solstice. And I reread this novel every year because the characters are wonderful and I want to spend time with them. They are celebrating Christmas together or preparing for Christmas together, and I want to do that with them. And they are in places, they're often in the they're in London or they're in Cornwall, or they're most for most of the book, they're in the Scottish Highlands. And I want to be in those places. <laughs> and the whole story is um, approaching the darkest, longest night of the year. I won't tell you much about it. I'm going to read a little bit here, but just know that it has the most emotionally satisfying ending, the most precious characters, and it also has, and this is why I've always liked Pilcher's novels, she was a woman who clearly shared my love for home and hearth and party planning, and she will tell a story But if there's a party in her story, then her character will sit down and make a grocery list and plan the menu for the party. (laughs) She doesn't skip over that part. She clearly takes delight in that part. And I, too, take delight in that part. So I am just going to read a little bit. Um, In this book, we, we hear the story from different characters' perspectives. So this particular portion is described from the young girl Lucy's perspective. So the whole book doesn't sound like this, but this portion does because she is um, just describing uh, a very special moment where they she's preparing a special Christmas surprise. And I think this, the reason I'm reading this portion is I think it just gives you a sense of the kind of domestic details that fill her novels. And these are the kind of details that fill me with joy. So here we go. This morning, Carrie and Sam went and got the Christmas tree. And Mrs. Sneed and I spring cleaned the dining room. It was dreadfully dusty and deserted. We put a notice on the door saying, Do not disturb, so that nobody came in. Mrs. Sneed lit a bit of paper in the fireplace to be sure that the chimney wasn't full of jackdaw nests. But the smoke all went up, and she said it was quite clean, so we shall be able to have a huge fire, which will make all the difference. And there were a couple of big cardboard crates, which seemed to be filled with crumpled newspaper, but we explored and found some silver candlesticks four of them, dreadfully tarnished but very handsome. We took all the rubbish across the hall and added them to the collection in the old office. 
There are very thick sort of tapestry curtains, which were a bit dusty. So we found a stepladder in the scullery, took them down and took them into the garden to shake them and then hung them up again. I cleaned the window while Mrs. Sneed washed all the fireplace tiles. We moved the table and Mrs. Sneed hoovered. Then we polished all the furniture. And then we spread newspaper and cleaned the candlesticks, which took ages because they are very ornate and patterned. Finally, while I went out and bought some candles— tall and cream, a bit like church candles. Mrs. Sneed went upstairs to look for tablecloths in her linen cupboard. There weren't any, but she found an old linen sheet, which is just as good, and we put a thick blanket underneath to protect the table. That's as far as we got, because she had to go home and give Arthur Sneed his dinner. But with the candlesticks and everything and the fire all laid out, it really looks wonderfully festive. I didn't want anybody to know about it so that it would be a surprise, but just before lunch, Carrie and Sam got back with the Christmas tree, and there was a great discussion as to where we should put it. We thought the sitting room, but Alfred is having a party on Saturday, and there'll be quite a lot of people. She thought it might take up too much space. Then Oscar suggested the landing, but there's going to be a table there for drinks, and it would get in the way of people going up and down the stairs. So then I had to admit about the dining room and they all trooped downstairs to inspect what we had been doing. It was lovely, because everybody was thrilled, and it all smelt polishy, and Elfrida said she had no idea the dining room could ever look so festive. And of course, that was exactly the right place for the tree. So Sam went out and brought it in, and he'd bought a sort of stand for it as well, so that made everything much easier. And Alfreda fetched her red silk shawl from her bed and draped it around the stand to hide the raw wood and the nails. It looked beautiful and is a lovely shape and size. I love the smell of trees coming indoors. It's like pine essence for the bath. In the afternoon, Oscar collected all the decorations we'd bought and we tied them on the tree. Sam fixed the lights and the star on the top branch. And Alfreda produced a whole roll of lovely, tartan ribbon she'd bought for tying up her presents, but she said sticky tape would be just as good. So we cut it and made lovely bows and put them all over the tree, and with the tinsel and the lights turned on, it is the prettiest I think I've ever seen. I'll stop there just to finish my plug for this novel by saying that there's a lot that happens in this book. A lot of amazing plot developments and tragedies and dramas and satisfying resolutions. But also there's a whole lot of this. Just cleaning candlesticks and planning special parties and getting ready for Christmas. And I think that's why I want to revisit this place and this story every single year. So that is Winter Solstice, uh, Rosamond Pilcher. And I love when they have really great character names like Mrs. Sneed. Yes. Perfection. <laughs> you know everything you need to know about Mrs. Sneed already. <laughs> yeah. Well, Christy, those cozy domestic details are the perfect transition for my book number four. So this author has been one of my favorites forever. If you have read my stuff or listened to me on the podcast or met me in person, you know that I treat books like old friends, which is why I reread them all the time, um, because it's like visiting an old friend. I need to catch up with somebody because when I read a book, it literally takes me back to that time in my life when I first discovered that book. So I am so delighted to introduce you to one of my close friends, (laughs) a book... (laughs) called The Sacred Diary of Adrian Plass, aged 37 and three quarters. 
What and a great title. <laughs> I love Adrian Plass so much because he and his books were introduced to me by my mom. So when I was in probably sophomore in high school, my mom introduced me to these books. Adrian Plass is a British writer and really a satirist, uh, a comedian, a humorist in his writing, but also a deep man of faith. And he's the place I go where faith starts to feel really serious. And I feel like I don't know if God could possibly like me because I mess up all the time. And this quote by Adrian Plass is why I love these books. He says, I became a Christian when I was 16 years old, but it wasn't until I was 37 that I absorbed an essential truth. God is nice, and He likes me. Isn't that so great? It's awesome. (laughs) So what you need to know about Adrian Plass is he actually went through a season of really deep depression and really questioning his own faith. He didn't know what to make of it or what to make of the church or how he fit into it or how could the church actually be helpful to the world when we're out grocery shopping and the grocery bag breaks in the middle of the street, you know, and we feel Mm. sad and overwhelmed. Like, where is God then? And that is why I love this book. He keeps this humoristic diary that really chronicles what life as an ordinary Christian in a messy, messed up church of ordinary people looks like. So, with that introduction, I'll just read you a few entries from the diary that happen around Christmas. Each one of them is dated. So, this says, Saturday, December 14th. It's my favorite first line of a book ever, Christy. I might cry. Like, that's how much I love this book. Like, I'm opening it, and like, there's my mom. And okay, I'm still giving background. I met Adrienne Plass. So (gasps) my mom, as you know, became sick when I was 16. She passed away when I was 18. And her these Adrian Plass books became so dear to me because she had introduced me to them. I, I started collecting them. And after her death, he visited South Africa and did a reading at a church. And my dad took me and he signed this book. This book I'm reading from today actually oh. has his signature in it. And um, when I read him, I can hear my mom's voice and I am reminded that God likes us and he loves us. And this is what Adrian writes, Saturday, December 14th, and I think anybody listening will be able to relate to how he is describing what Christmas can feel like, this supposedly high and holy holiday that takes place in our homes where we're surrounded by relatives we maybe haven't seen in a year. (laughs) And awkward, difficult moments and weird tensions spring up as we judge one another's faiths and Christianity and the presence that we received. So (laughs) he says, Saturday, December 14th. Feel led to keep a diary, a sort of spiritual log for the benefit of others in the future. Each new divine insight and experience will shine like a beacon in the darkness. Can't think of anything to put in it today. Still, tomorrow's Sunday. Must be something on a Sunday, surely. greatest intro to a book ever, which really sets the tone. So I'm actually going to read to you now um, Tuesday, December 24th and Wednesday, December 25th from his diary, because if you just need to laugh through the holidays at the moments of family weirdness that will inevitably happen, Adrian is there to make you feel normal. His wife's name, I'll just give a little context so you know, um, his wife's name is Anne. Anne has a great Aunt Marjorie, who is 
who's visiting, who's incredibly disapproving. And then there's an Uncle Ralph, who is essentially um, a whoopee cushion of a human being. It's really his exact personality. <laughs> so you can imagine. So essentially, you know, you've got your hyper-conservative Christian, and then your lax, not a believer at all, makes fun of all things Christians, all gathered around the Christmas tree. <laughs> so Tuesday, December 24th, how is it possible for someone like Anne to have an uncle like Ralph? He arrived just after lunch, a short, very fat man on a tiny motor scooter. Life is just one big whoopee cushion to Uncle Ralph. Disastrous first encounter with great Aunt Marjorie. Kissed her full on the lips and said, No one told me there was going to be some spare talent on the menu this Christmas. Stick around, Margie girl. You could be right up little Ralphie's street. Aunt Marjorie turned puce and has refused to look at him, let alone talk to him, all evening. Even when he flicked through the TV guide and said, Oh, look, somebody's gone through and marked off all the best shows. Those were the ones Aunt Marjorie had marked for not watching. Anne and I arranged all the presents under the Christmas tree tonight. The ones from Uncle Ralph are all shaped like bottles. I asked Anne what she thinks God loves about Uncle Ralph, and she said, his niece. We kissed. Wednesday, December 25th, Christmas Day. Aunt Marjorie went off to a proper church this morning. Ralph, not up by the time Gerald and Anne and I left for the Christmas service, enjoyed it all very much, except for a point halfway through the prayer time when George Farmer, who was sitting behind me, stood up and began to swing his fist from side to side as he prayed fervently for goodwill among God's people suddenly felt a heavy blow on the side of my head and slumped forward, momentarily stunned. Shook my head to clear it and realized to my amazement that Farmer was still ranting on as if nothing had happened. Did not feel much goodwill. I said to him afterwards, I forgive you for punching me in the head, George. He said, did I really do that? Gerald said, yes, you did. It was on your 25th just. I was counting. Went home. Spent the rest of the day rugby tackling Uncle Ralph's jokes before they could cross the line. Became more and more difficult as he drank more and more whiskey. After tea, he went up to his room to get something really good for a game he knew. Came back with a rubber monkey. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he came back with a rubber monkey attached to a long length of elastic. <laughs> get through it without crying and laughing and told great aunt marjorie she should stuff the monkey down her dress <laughs> pull it out the bottom and pass it to him so he could put it down his trousers and then pass it to Anne. <laughs> thought for a moment she was going to faint <laughs> she retired to bed early leaving the bottle of gin that Ralph gave her this morning unopened in the waste paper basket near the foot of the stairs. <laughs> oh, I have actual tears in my eyes. Gerald, who seems to have enjoyed the day enormously, asked Ralph if he knew any more good games. <laughs> Ralph said the best game he knew was one where you sit in a circle and each person drinks a bottle of whiskey. Then one person goes out of the room and the others have to guess who it was. <laughs> How can you run a Christian household with people like Uncle Ralph around? I could be a really good Christian if other people didn't mess it up all the time. I've noticed this before. 
mentioned it to Anne in bed tonight. She said, well, I promise you, darling, that Gerald and I will try really hard not to stand in the way of your saintliness. Just a hint of satire there, I fancy. And that is the gift of the Sacred Diary of Adrian Plass, aged 37 and three quarters. Cannot recommend it highly enough. Oh, I cry oh, I until like it. tears run down my face and I get all snotty and I cough out loud. And then Peter goes, are you reading the Sacred Diary again? <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, Lisa Joe, there is no appropriate bridge between that hilarious there's no appropriate bridge between a monkey on a bit of elastic and the book my number three but you know what that's okay because that's what i love so much about how this bonus episode is shaping up is that there's so much variety here i mean there's something for everyone and there's something for every mood and so i think it's perfect but my number three is much more serious it is um, a kind of book i especially love this time of year it's a daily devotional a book of daily reading so it's a collection and it's called watch for the light readings for Advent and Christmas, and it has a different selection for every day from, I think it begins the 1st of December, and it goes all the way through Epiphany, so well into January, and it has um, selections from people like C.S. Lewis, Thomas Merton, Philip Yancey, Madeline Langle, who we've talked about, Henry Nowen, Kathleen Norris, Bonhoeffer, Annie Dillard. It's so, so good. Wow. And yeah, it's just amazing. And people I had never heard of until I read this book, which is also what I love about a selection of readings is that you're introduced to other um, writers, poets, preachers, theologians, hymn writers, so on. Um, And so I have a number of books like this one, and I love them all, but this is the one that... I never set aside for a year. This one gets opened every single year. So I thought this would be a good one to share here as my number three. So you understand in a book like this, the variety you get day to day is enormous. Some selections are quite brief, some are longer. They're all very different. But I think what they have in common in this book is a um, is a seriousness, an intensity, a deep meaningfulness. Mm. And so I'm just going to read the selection from January 4th. So you kind of think about where that falls in the season. And I'm just going to read it because it is a poem by one of my very favorite poets. And yeah, I get to read a poem. So here we go. (laughs) Uh, I love the poetry of T.S. Eliot. So this is a poem that maybe um, some of our listeners won't know. You may know The Wasteland or Four Quartets. Four Quartets is one of my absolute Mm. favorites by him. I could live in Four Quartets. Um, But this is a brief poem called The Journey of the Magi. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of year for a journey, and such a long journey, the ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. And the camel's galled, sore-footed refractory lying down in the melting snow, there were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters and the cities hostile and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches with the voices singing in our ears, saying, 
that this was all folly. Then at dawn we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a water mill beating the darkness, and three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information, and so we continued, and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, as you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago. I remember, and I would do it again, but set down this, set down this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. That is The Journey of the Magi by T.S. Eliot, just one of the readings from Watch for the Light. And um, before we move on to your number three, I'll just say that I, you reread, like you were talking about the Adrian Plass books, you reread certain books because they're old friends. And I've always said, oh, I'm not a rereader. But I think that is why I read poetry and why I love poems is because the very best poems must be read again and again and again. So that poem right there, you can revisit and revisit. And the symbolism is so deep and the theology of those symbols so meaningful and so rich that I can pull something new out of it almost every time I read it. So it's a poem to to revisit. So watch for the light, my number three. Christy, I actually got chills up my spine when you started reading. It was the perfect bridge because I grew up on that poem. My mom mm. used to read it to us. Really? I yes, had no idea. The Journey of the oh, Magi. I love it so much. And of course, it's an interesting now connection to my, I guess, is this my number three now? Are we getting so close to being over? It's so much fun. But it's a really interesting bridge because in that poem, he talks about the three trees and the mm-hmm. tavern, and of course, the symbolism there, you can unpack on so many levels. The the cross, you know, the three crosses, ultimately, that would mark Christ's life at the end. Um, but the three trees and the tavern, Christy, what, what author does this make you think of in the fiction genre that you just know had to be on this list? Oh, I just got it. I didn't know. Oh, of course, of course. Okay, I'll let you say no, it. No, say it. Oh, should I? Can I? Okay. Yes. Louise Penny. Of course, three Louise times. Penny. Yes, three yes. times. <laughs> there had to be a Louise Penny book on our list. We love her so much. And the second in her series of 15 books is called A Fatal Grace, and it takes place at Christmas. It's a oh. Christmas murder mystery <laughs> yes. that takes oh, place. Oh, I'm going to reread this one this year. Yes. So, there are these three pine trees that mark this tiny town called Three Pines. And there is, of course, when I think about 
you know, in that poem, the tavern, I, of course, think of the bistro in her Mm -hmm. beautiful setting of books. And so I wanted to just read a tiny synopsis so you understand the depth of our love for this author and why you should love her too. So um, I'm actually at this awesome site called supersummary.com talking about Louise Penny and uh, her writing style. So it says, A Fatal Grace is the second title in Louise Penny's Chief Inspector Armand Gamache cozy mystery series. I mean, isn't this the perfect time of year for a cozy mystery? The book was first published in 2007, and it won the Agatha Award for Best Novel and has been hailed as a highly intelligent mystery. The series has 15 titles, most of which have reached the top of the New York Times bestseller list because they are amazing. And the series is set in contemporary Canada. Most of the stories take place in the fictional village of Three Pines, which is near Montreal. Now, here's a fatal grace plot summary. I don't want to give anything away, but I want to give a teaser so you should go read it. A fatal grace takes place between December 22nd and New Year's Day. It begins with the murder of a woman named Cecilia, or CC during the Three Pines' annual Christmas curling tournament. Could there be anything more Canadian than that? <laughs> Cece is a newcomer to the village and considers herself a new age lifestyle coach. She has written a whole book about it and is launching a product line based on a philosophy she calls Libyan. Far from the enlightened soul she believes herself to be, she is thoroughly disliked by everyone in the village, particularly for her mistreatment of her obese daughter, whose name is Cree. Cece's death is particularly bizarre. She's standing on a frozen lake watching the curling match when she is electrocuted. Inspector Gamache of the Sûreté de Québec, ooh, I feel like I did that very well, investigates Mm -hmm. the crime. Gamache has mixed feelings about returning to Three Pines because he solved a murder there the year before and almost lost his life in the process. The inspector brings a team of detectives with him to work on Cece's murder. And of course, there are many deeper layers than just the murder itself. Gamache is simultaneously investigating the case of a strangled beggar who was found dead outside of a Montreal department store. And those two cases become intertwined in the most interesting way. What makes Louise Penny so beautiful is that her stories are about a literal murder, but they're always about what is happening inside of us. It's about our motivations, and it's a call to examine those, because what rots on the inside is the very beginning of murder, which really is a deeply Christian belief, right? That's what Jesus says, when you hate a man in your heart, you've already killed him. And these kind of mysteries do such a beautiful job of unpacking them. So, this department store, the Montreal department store, I want to read a tiny excerpt from the book because it's describing Montreal at Christmas time. And it is the most beautiful, <laughs> delicious, like want to step through the window frame kind of description um, of a place that Christy and I wish we could visit, right? Mm-hmm. We will one day. I'm determined. I believe it too. All right. So, here we go. Clara Morrow was dying to see Ogilvy's Christmas window. The hallowed department store in downtown Montreal had the most magical Christmas window in the world. In mid-November, the huge panes would go black and blank, covered by paper. Then the excitement would start. When would the holiday wonderment be unveiled? It was more exciting to Clara as a child than the Santa Claus parade. 
When word spread that Ogilvy's had finally taken off the paper, Clara would rush downtown and straight to the magical window. And there it would be. Clara would rush up to the window but stop just short, just out of eyeshot. She'd close her eyes and gather herself, and then she'd step forward and open her eyes. And there it was. Clara's village, the place she'd go when disappointments and dawning cruelty would overwhelm the sensitive little girl. Summer or winter, all she had to do was close her eyes and she was there. With the dancing bears and the skating ducks and frogs in Victorian costume fishing from the bridge. At night, when the ghoul huffed and snorted and clawed beneath her bedroom floor, she would squeeze her tiny blue eyes shut and will herself into the magical window and the village the ghoul could never find because kindness guarded the entry. Later in her life, the most wonderful thing happened. She fell in love with Peter Morrow and agreed to put off taking New York by storm. Instead, she agreed to move to the tiny village he loved south of Montreal. It was a region Clara was unfamiliar with being a city girl, but such was her love for Peter that she didn't even hesitate. And so it was, 26 years ago, as a clever and cynical art college grad, Clara stepped out of their rattletrap Volkswagen and started to weep. Peter had brought her to the enchanted village of her childhood, the village she had forgotten in the attitude and importance of adulthood. Ogilvy's Christmas window had been real, after all, and was called Three Pines. They'd bought a little home by the village green and settled into a life more magical than even Clara had dared to dream. So that's a little flavor of the cozy part of these cozy murder mysteries. There's a lot of coziness and beautiful characters whose lives intertwine as they are really digging out of their souls long buried grudges and resentments that are brought into light with each new murder case um, that really grows your characters up across all 15 books. The core of the heart of the main characters stay the same and Um, I promise you, money-back guarantee, you will love these books. So that's A Fatal Grace by Louise Penny. Well, you know, Lisa Joe, that I love those books. So I am so glad that you thought to include one on our list. Well done. I just couldn't imagine any top 10 list in the world without Louise Penny on it. Good job. So we have arrived at my number two. And I placed this book as number two because it's a very unique book but it just wraps up everything I love about the holidays. So this book is memoir. It is a collection of short stories and it is a cookbook. It has recipes. Oh, no way. Yeah, it's so perfect. So this book is Christmas Days, 12 Stories and 12 Feasts for 12 Days. Oh, no way. yeah, Yeah. By Jeanette Winterson. So she is um, a memoirist. Some readers may know. I will say here at the beginning, like this is not a, a short story collection to read with your children. This is a book for adults. Some of the stories, the stories are, uh, there's a huge variety of styles and subject matter, which is I love. Um, I believe actually that she put this collection together because she was in the habit over the years of writing a new short story for every Christmas and then sharing it with family and friends. And so they're collected here. But that means that each story is incredibly different. Um, And I love that. 
but I would encourage our listeners to do their own research about whether or not this book is appropriate for them because these are, you know, they're short stories for adults and some of the themes of some of the stories are, you know, more adult themes. But I, oh goodness, wh- let me count the ways of <laughs> why I love this book. I love it. Well, first of all, I love food writing. I read cookbooks like novels. And the way that Winterson writes about food and feasting and celebration is, um, I think we're just kindred spirits. She also, um, she's writing from a different place. She's writing um, about experiencing the Christmas season in the UK, in Great Britain. And so some of the traditions she describes are a little different. Some of the foods she describes are a little different, but it's also fascinating to me. I want to try all of her recipes. And also I love, and you know, I love this, Lisa Joe. in our house, we are big believers in um, celebrating all 12 days of Christmas. So the first day would be December 25th, and then there are 12 days all the way to Epiphany. And the reason I love that is because it just means we get to lean in and receive more of what I love about Christmas. So more special meals, more using, you know, the Christmas dishes I inherited from my Aunt Sissy and um, more days to enjoy the Christmas tree, uh, which we leave up for all of Christmas. And so I often am asked by people, well, what do you how, what, what do you mean about these 12 days? How, what does that even look like to observe 12 days? And I feel like there's a lot of great ideas in this book because we get to see how, how she does it. And it's not in elaborate ways. It might just be a very simple meal that you eat alone on one of those days, but with the right perspective and the right attitude, and especially if it's something you do every year, that might be how you celebrate, you know, the sixth day of Christmas. Um, so I'm just going to read a little excerpt from one of the stories, keeping in mind that each story um, is so different. But I love this story. Oh, goodness, some of the stories that just have this sweetness to them that I love. They're all just very emotionally satisfying. Um, and I think that's because she intended each story to be a Christmas gift to, you know, her friends and family. So this particular story is called The Snow Mama. It's a beautiful little story, and I love this one because the language also is so inventive. Um, and so I'm just going to read the opening paragraphs where um, she is describing the snow. <laughs> okay, this is the snow mama. It is snowing. In the English language, we do not know anything about the it that is snowing. It might be God. Maybe not. Anyway, it is snowing. What kind of snow? There are many kinds of snow. Did you know snow that? There's mountain snow and polar snow and ski snow and deep snow and snow in flutters like tiny moths and snow in flurries like moths in a hurry and (laughs) snow in flakes like someone. It is grating the sky. And snow sharp as insect bites, and snow as soft as lather, and wet snow that doesn't stick, and dry snow that does, and wraps the world like an installation to the point in the night where you wake up and the sound is gone, to the point in the night where you turn deeper into the bed, to the point in the night where there's snow in your sleep, and your sleep is as deep. As snow. Oh, As snow mama. Wow. Oh, I wow. love these stories so much. Lisa Joe, there are ghost stories in here. There are mysteries. There are like old medieval fairy tales. There are fanciful magical tales. Actually, most of the stories I think have some bit of magic in them. Um, this one is about snow people who come to life and do just this amazing 
loving work in the life of this little girl. So uh, I love these stories. So my number two is Christmas Days by Jeanette Winterson. Well, I literally, while you were reading it, opened up my library app and put it on my list because that sounds so fun. I love it. Love, love, love. And I've never thought of snow as something that feels like insect bites. That's the most phenomenal description. I love it. All right. So this brings us now to my number two. And what's so surprising to me, I didn't realize this when I was putting the list together, is now I will have two books on my list that are written in diary form. So this book is called Dear Mr. Knightley by Catherine Reed. I've had a love affair with this book for a long time, and it's actually based on an original book that was written, I guess, when did that come out? A, a long time ago. It, that was called Daddy Longlegs. Are you familiar oh, sure. with this story? I am. By Jean Webster. And in that story, um, it's a really a modern retelling of that story about a young girl who is an orphan. She grows up an orphan. And in our, in our modern version that uh, Catherine Ray writes in Dear Mr. Knightley, there's this young orphan girl. She actually comes from a very abusive family. She's been removed from her parents. She grows up alone, essentially. And when she's, she's past college, she's in her grad years now studying journalism. And an anonymous benefactor offers to, through this foundation um, that she's associated with, offers to cover her tuition. And part of the requirements is that she writes weekly updates to the trustees to let them know how her studies are going. And we find out that, um, this is not giving anything away, but Father John, who's very much involved in her life and is the priest who takes an interest in the care for her, he knew that she's an amazing writer and he thought giving her a chance to write would be a helpful way to have her process her life. And What's interesting about her is that she has this passionate love for all things Jane Austen. And when she's grown up in this really traumatic background, books were the places she could hide. And the characters in books were like real people to her. And she can actually quote verbatim from these books. And so when she's in a highly stressed environment, she'll quote like Lizzie Bennet as if it's her. Like she uses Lizzie's words (laughs) to help deflect (laughs) stressful experiences that she's having. And this is the most tender book about really how how someone who's broken and unloved, what it looks like for them to process the world and then be welcomed into a home. And so she chronicles this diary and it's called Dear Mr. Knightley because the trustee that she's writing to, she doesn't know his name. And of course, she names him after her favorite character (laughs) from a Jane Austen book, Dear Mr. Knightley. And she has at this stage, this is December 21st, she's been taken in by this wonderful family called the Muirs. And they are a professor, a retired professor and his wife who were never able to have children themselves. And they are the first people that have really loved her, treated her like a daughter. They have a spare bedroom they make over for her. And of course, ultimately, you'll see they get to a place where they adopt her, even though she's college, mm-hmm. post-grad age. It's, oh, this tender story. And then, of course, of course, there's a love story, too. Mm-hmm. And so this excerpt I'm going to read to you is from December 21st, from the perspective of someone who's never in her adult life or her childhood had a family around Christmas or anybody to care for her. It says, Dear Mr. Knightley, I am at the Muir's right now and our Christmas production is underway. Tree trimming, cookie baking, gift organizing, movie watching, and song singing. 
They're off to a cocktail party, but I begged off to write you, and I will sign this missive with my new silver pen. Thank you very much. It's a lovely gift, Mr. Knightley. I appreciate it a great deal. Exams ended and Christmas break has started. I will return to Medill for graduation in January, but all my classwork is done. I don't have a job yet. That remains the lost sign that I really was the one clinging off the back ledge. Everyone else I know has an offer, but I made it, and for some reason I'm not worried about my job prospects. I truly believe I will be okay. Do you ever feel like there are plans for you, not ones you make, but plans for good, that will come about if you trust and remain patient? It's a strange feeling, but it has crept upon me lately and I can't shake it. I told Mrs. Muir about it and you won't believe what she found. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. I didn't make that up. It's a direct quote from the Bible, Jeremiah 29, verse 11. It describes my feeling precisely. There are plans, good plans, just out of reach. And I wait, feeling hopeful and peaceful, not desperate and tense. That's brand new. The Muirs keep praying for me, and there's power in that too, so I won't fret about the job, but I will work. I owe my future and your generosity my best effort. I finished my annual reading of Dickens' A Christmas Carol today. The tradition started several years ago because I felt so aligned with Scrooge. I understood his fear, confusion, and longing as each ghost took him through his life, and he was reminded of the pain he endured and then caused. I let go of people and relationships to protect myself, too, and then I detached so completely that I lost the ability to connect. I still remember my first day at Medill when I met Debbie and she looked at me like I was from another planet before she and her friends left the table. I've changed. I laid down those characters and I faced my ghosts. But unlike Scrooge, my transformation builds slowly. That's the one thing that still bothers me about that story. How was Scrooge's transformation so complete and joyful? How did he lay down so much so quickly? Did he ever slip back? We are led to believe he changed forever. He found freedom. I haven't found it. Freedom remains elusive, and there's something more Scrooge possessed that I don't. Joy. The professor says it has something to do with surrendering my heart, my plans, and my will. I think that first requires a softening of the heart, a ceasefire on fighting inside. I do feel that, so maybe I'm beginning to understand. Speaking of elusive, I got an email from Alex yesterday. For a man so eloquent in person and even more so in print, he can be an uncommunicative jerk. Coming to Chicago for final research. Have dinner with me Christmas Eve. Wait and hope. Alex. A confusing note. I haven't heard from him in months other than that vague good wishes on your adoption note. And now a dinner invitation and wait and hope. Those were my winning words in that literary game we played the first day we met. Edmund Dante's final written words to Maximilian. They are instructions to young lovers, instructions for life. The irony that those words articulate my feelings for the future has not escaped me, but that has nothing to do with Alex. Nevertheless, I accepted his invitation. The malicious fury it ignited proved too tempting. I honestly feel as angry now as I did in Kara's hospital room. 
I wonder if I could decimate Alex with words, too. Might be worth a try. When I told the Muirs about the invitation, not the Fury, they insisted I invite him to join us for our church's midnight service. Alex agreed. Now I must go. There are cookies in the oven, and I promise not to burn them again. Thanks for the pen, Mr. Knightley, and Merry Christmas. Love, Sam. Hmm, so good. Oh. You've told me about that book before, but I don't think I I didn't realize what it was actually about and what it was based on. So I'm I'm gonna read it now. I'm much more intrigued. Yeah, I have a friend who is an amazing foster parent and I had given it to her, I think, a couple of years ago for Christmas, and she told me she just cried through a lot of it. It's just very mm-hmm. interesting to be inside of the mind of an adult who mm-hmm. grew up in foster care and in a very abusive home. And I wouldn't say this is sort of a preachy Christian book at all, but it is the slow discovery of the gospel message and how it Mm. transforms us, but really how it transforms us when we see it through the behavior of other people, Mm -hmm. not when people preach to us, but when they just love us. So it's a number two for me. Mm. Well, it's not all that. I mean, it's very different, but it is connected actually to my number one, which also focuses on um, fam- the gift of family, of relationships, of home, and um, of a kind of awakening or discovery of what that love really is. And so my number one, drum roll, <laughs> <Do, do, do, laughs> thank you, this is Christmas Day in the Morning by Pearl S. Buck. So she is a well-known writer. Some of our listeners will know. This is actually in, I'm sure you can find it in many forms, but this is in a really beautiful picture book form illustrated by Mark. um, I don't know how to say his name, but it looks like Buner. And it is something you can read with children, absolutely. But this is a book I give to adults. I I think I've shared this book with my father. Um, This is so much more than it, it just it really it's a picture book it's beautifully illustrated but it is not just for children um this story is well let me just put it this way lisa joe my sister lisa recently asked for some recommendations for a christmas book so first of all i told her that our podcast was coming and she should listen to it oh good <laughs> but i <laughs> nice. also um shared this recommendation with her and uh, she got it. And as soon as she got it and she read it, she just sent me a text with just the little emoji faces. And they were just little cry faces. Oh. <laughs> so this book, uh, you will cry. <laughs> it's a tearjerker. But it's a tearjerker in a way that I appreciate, which doesn't feel, it's not emotionally manipulative. What it is, it's just opening a window on the... <sighs> just a beautiful story of the love between a father and a son. And it tells the story of a son giving a special gift to his father without even realizing what it would mean to him, but just had this urge. My father, it's it's an awakening that I think many of us go through where we realize that we have been loved by others, but maybe haven't even understood the depths of those of that love. So this son is a, a teenager and he um, he wakes up to the fact that his parents actually love him, that his father, who he just takes for granted, actually loves him. And so he wants to give a gift in return. And he's actually remembering, um, the story opens, he's remembering that long ago Christmas as an older man. And he's remembering how his father reacted and what it meant to his father. And I'm trying to think, I'm not going to read... 
a selection. I'm just flipping through it now because the story is, because it's a brief little story, every word is precious. And it it has a bit of a twist and um, some unexpected moments. And I just want our listeners to be able to appreciate all of those for themselves. But I think um, I think the reason I recommend this book is it, without being in some sense a, a literal Christmas story, right? It's not about Jesus in the manger. It's not a Bible story. And yet in telling this very simple family story of a young boy and his dad, I think um, Pearl Buck has... It's like she's found a whole new form to describe the father love of God. And even, and I think I'm even just realizing this as I talk about it, to tap into some of the beauty of the Trinity, which is a relational kind of love, a father-son love between father and the one who's begotten, beloved and, 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 you know, lover and beloved, you know, that relational aspect of love, I think she kept captures so well. And so that's why I say this is a book you can read with children. They'll appreciate it. And actually, I enjoy reading it, especially with my, you know, school age kids, because I think it's also maybe a subtle way of communicating to them how parents really feel about them and how their parents really feel about them in a way that I think they can appreciate. Um, But really, there's just so much going on in this story that I think is um, deeply rooted in what Christmas is really, truly about. So this is Christmas Day in the Morning by Pearl S. Buck. Um, I'm being vague and not giving you too many details just because this is a story that I think is best approached without, you know, knowing all the details of the plot ahead of time and just enjoyed and received. And then, yes, you will cry. (laughs) (laughs) And then tears. (laughs) That feels appropriate. So maybe it's the kind of gift I should buy to give to Peter from his kids for Christmas. Oh, yes. Would that be good? You should definitely read it with your kids and just see how they respond. It's just such a... Yeah, I, I, I actually hope you will. And then you'll tell me what they think of it and how they respond to it. And then I think they would love to give this to him. And it may actually inspire. So the the, the son in the book is just very creative in the, in the gift he gives his father. And he gives this gift because he doesn't have money. And, you know, most oh, of our kids don't, right? They, yes. they don't have access to money. And, and this is, of course, a time without shopping malls. It's a poor farming family. But he's so creative in the gift that he gives his father, even though he has no money. He Basically, he serves his father in a really unique way. And so, yeah, I think sharing that with our kids, it can be really revealing and it can kind of open their eyes to like the possibilities that even they have as children to love others. So, yeah, I hope you will. I've loved this exercise so much. This has been so much fun. So my number one is also a book, I think, trying to open your eyes to see Jesus differently. I mean, that is Mm. what it's not, it's not sort of or trying to. That's, that is what the book is. It's called The Jesus I Never Knew by Philip Yancey. And it's Mm. an oldie but a goodie because, especially at this time of year, I think, where we have this perception of Jesus as just the sweet little baby in a manger. And um, I find it so interesting to try to connect to all the elements that made him very human. And then also very divine. And Yancey is able to really let us look at that baby at a manger in a a very unique filter. He does a ton of research. He shares historically, he shares, you know, what Jewish, you know, the Jewish context for understanding who Jesus was. He unpacks um, this very unique parallels between what Matthew is telling us or Luke is telling us about the birth of Christ with then Revelation and how Revelation talks about the coming king. And so the passage in this book I'm going to read today. Actually, I've started reading it to my kids every Christmas now because I want them to see Jesus 
not just as this helpless, tiny little baby, no crying he makes, which annoys me so much. Those lyrics just grate my cheese because I'm like, what are you talking about? Why would he be no crying he makes? What is that about? (laughs) He was a human baby. He was crying and screaming and Mary was aching and in pain after she gave birth to him. And I want my kids to see in him, though, also what the Jewish nation was looking for, the conquering hero. And the thing is, he showed up in a way we didn't expect, but but heaven, the forces, the realms of light and darkness understood his victory in coming. And so, this passage, uh, which is rather a longer reading, and I'm justifying it since it's my last one, man, it shocks me every year when I read mm. it to think of Jesus this way. So, here we go. I'm going to take a last sip of water from all the reading. If you hear pages, it's because I have them in front of me. This is from The Jesus I Never Knew. There is one more view of Christmas I have never seen on a Christmas card, probably because no artist, not even William Blake, could do it justice. Revelation 12 pulls back the curtain to give us a glimpse of Christmas as it must have looked from somewhere far beyond Andromeda, Christmas from the angel's viewpoint. The account differs radically from the birth stories in the Gospels. Revelation does not mention shepherds and an infanticidal king. Rather, it pictures a dragon leading a ferocious struggle in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and wearing a crown of twelve stars cries out in pain as she is about to give birth. Suddenly, the enormous red dragon enters the picture, his tail sweeping a third of the stars out of the sky and flinging them to the earth. He crouches hungrily before the woman, anxious to devour her child the moment it is born. At the last second, the infant is snatched away to safety. The woman flees into the desert, and an all-out cosmic war begins. Revelation is a strange book by any measure, and readers must understand its style to make sense of this extraordinary spectacle. In daily life, two parallel histories occur simultaneously, one on earth and one in heaven. Revelation, however, views them together, allowing a quick look behind the scenes. On earth, a baby was born, a king got wind of it, a chase ensued. In heaven, the great invasion had begun, a daring raid by the ruler of the forces of good into the universe's seat of evil. John Milton expressed this point of view majestically in Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained, poems which make heaven and hell the central focus and earth a mere battleground for their clashes. The modern author, J.B. Phillips, also attempted such a point of view on a much less epic scale. And last Christmas, I turned to Phillips's fantasy to try to escape my earthbound viewpoint. In Phillips's version, a senior angel is showing a very young angel around the splendors of the universe. They view whirling galaxies and blazing suns, and then flit across the infinite distances of space until at last they enter one particular galaxy of 500 billion stars. As the two of them draw near to the star, which we call our sun, and to its circling planets, the senior angel pointed to a small and rather insignificant sphere, turning very slowly on its axis. 
It looked as dull as a dirty tennis ball to the little angel, whose mind was filled with the size and the glory of what he had seen. I want you to watch that one particularly, said the senior angel, pointing with his finger. Well, it looks very small and rather dirty to me, said the little angel. What's special about that one? When I read Phillips's fantasy, I thought of the pictures beamed back to Earth from the Apollo astronauts, who described our planet as whole and round and beautiful and small, a blue, green, and tan globe suspended in space. Jim Lovell, reflecting on the scene later, said, It was just another body, really, about four times bigger than the moon, but it held all the hope and all the life and all the things that the crew of Apollo 8 knew and loved. It was the most beautiful thing there was to see in all the heavens. That was the viewpoint of a human being. To the little angel, though, Earth did not seem so impressive— He listened in stunned disbelief as the senior angel told him that this planet, small and insignificant and not overly clean, was the renowned, visited planet. Do you mean that our great and glorious prince went down in person to this fifth-rate little ball? Why should he do a thing like that? The little angel's face wrinkled in disgust. Do you mean to tell me, he said, that he stooped so low as to become one of those creeping, crawling creatures on that floating ball? I do, and I don't think he would like you to call them creeping, crawling creatures in that tone of voice. For strange as it may seem to us, he loves them. He went down to visit them, to lift them up, to become like him. The little angel looked blank. Such a thought was almost beyond his comprehension. It is almost beyond my comprehension, too, and yet I accept that this notion is the key to understanding Christmas and is, in fact, the touchstone of my faith. As a Christian, I believe that we live in parallel worlds. One world consists of hills and lakes and barns and politicians and shepherds watching their flocks by night. The other consists of angels and sinister forces, and somewhere out there, places called heaven and hell. One night in the cold, in the dark, among the wrinkled hills of Bethlehem, those two worlds came together at a dramatic point of intersection. God, who knows no before or after, entered time and space. God, who knows no boundaries, took on the shocking confines of a baby's skin, the ominous restraints of mortality. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, an apostle would later write. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. But the few eyewitnesses on Christmas night saw none of that. They saw an infant struggling to work never-before-used lungs. Could it be true, this Bethlehem story of a creator descending to be born on one small planet? If so, it is a story like no other. Never again need we wonder whether what happens on this dirty little tennis ball of a planet matters to the rest of the universe. Little wonder— A choir of angels broke out in spontaneous song, disturbing not only a few shepherds, but the entire universe.
Thank you. My heart feels so full every time I read that reminder of why Christmas isn't just about Christmas trees and presents, but it's really about a rip heard through the universe Mm. that all of heaven bore witness to that we get to Mm -hmm. celebrate together. Mm -hmm. I love it. That's the perfect book to end on. I've never read it, so I'm going to read it this year. Thank you. And I hope our listeners will find something, I know they will, something in this episode. I mean, so many books we've shared. And I look forward to hearing in the weeks to come the ones that mean the most to um, those who've heard this and gone to the library or gone to the bookstore or shared these books with their kids. Uh, I can't wait to hear what they think of them. I know. Please do let us know somehow. Shoot us a note or an email or tag one of us on social media. It'll be Christy who responds these days since I'm Mm -hmm. off for a little while. But gosh, we do feel like this was kind of like wrapping up Christmas presents to put under your tree because these are our favorite reads. So... If this list sounds like something that a book lover in your family would like, please do send them to outoftheordinarypodcast.com slash bonus so that they can download and listen to the episode themselves. But we hope these books keep you good company along with your hot chocolate and Christmas carols, as well as just the squabbling that comes with Christmas that you would feel seen and known and understood um, in the very ordinary, extraordinary of Christmas 